This morning I, we're in the Olivet Discourse, and since we have a few new people, we're going to do a quick... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can do it. I'll try not to lie. <laughs> we're going to do a quick overview of what we've already done so that uh, you don't feel totally lost, and then we'll jump into where we left off last week. So, Olivet Discourse is Matthew 24 and 25. In Matthew's Gospel, there are parallels in Mark, Mark 13, the parallel account in Luke's Gospel, Luke 21. Matthew has the most extended discussion, so we're concentrating on an exposition of Matthew's account. And it is Jesus' exposition on the last days, or Bible prophecy. Theologians call that eschatology, so now you can impress your friends with a new word there. Before we get into the text, and really before we get into this brief overview, just something related... Uh, We believe that God is the creator of all things, and the heavens declare his glory. And if you want to start off a day tomorrow worshiping him, and by the way, there's going to be phenomenon, particularly in the book of Revelation, but Matthew, there's a verse in Matthew where the whole heavens are going to be shaken, and there's going to be astrological phenomenon preceding the last days, but you don't have to wait. You can get up tomorrow morning, and February 1st, that's tomorrow, the moon is going to be closely aligned to Mars. It's just to kind of wonder at God's glory and think in terms of God putting those on the day four, placing them is what it says in day four of Genesis chapter one. So Mars... And the moon are going to be very close, so you ought to be able to see Mars. And I tried to look this morning. It might be cloudy, because it was cloudy this morning, and I didn't wasn't able to see anything. But that's tomorrow. On the 3rd, the moon is going to be right above Saturn, so look below it. And then on the 6th, this is very unusual to have all these planets kind of all in the same place. Mercury and Venus, little triangle there, uh, right above Mercury will be the moon, and it will be a crescent moon. So if you are interested in glorifying God... There are actually five planets visible right now. Uh, Jupiter, Jupiter, far over. Mars, Saturn, Venus, and Mercury. Yes, you saw all five of them. All right. You don't need a telescope. You can see these with the naked eye, unless it's cloudy. The, The way you can tell a planet from a star is stars twinkle and planets don't. Okay, good. Just to kind of get you into the passage, now we're dealing with understanding the times, so it deals with things that we need to be aware of in our culture, but uh, a lot of people that deal with Bible prophecy, we've been emphasizing the idea that we don't want to sensationalize like some do, but yet, at the same time, Jesus encourages us to, in fact, that phrase comes from Jesus himself. He recommended the generation that uh, he came to because they were not aware of the times in which they were living in and they should have known. They had Daniel chapter 9 that gave them a precise calendar. They had other passages that indicated conditions during the time that Messiah would arrive. So he reprimands them for not understanding the times 
Similarly, we need to be aware of our times, whether we are close to the arrival of Messiah or not. We need to know what God is doing in the world, and that's one of the emphasis that we are attempting to, to accomplish. So we've looked at a lot of background. This is the same outline, by the way, as we used last week. I didn't make enough copies. We've looked at the setting of the Olivet Discourse, and actually we went all the way through the Gospel of Matthew in a summary form, because it's important to understand where the Olivet Discourse fits in in Matthew's overall Gospel. A major theme, in fact, why don't you tell me, what is the major theme of the Gospel of Matthew, which is different from Luke or Mark or John? Major theme? That you might believe. No, that's John. The Messiah is here. Jewish Messiah, but what else with the Jewish Messiah? Pardon me? Well, yeah, that's a major theme, but you're missing the big picture here. Well, some eschatology, but the kingdom. In other words, when the king arrives, Matthew is telling us that when the king is here, then the kingdom will come with him. In other words, he comes to establish a kingdom. Very important concept. Now, Matthew is explaining why the kingdom was not established. And that is primarily done in the Olivet Discourse. The reason is the king was rejected, so in the setting we have the final rejection, essentially, of the king before the ultimate rejection, which is the crucifixion. So we have a lot of opposition starting in in, uh, chapter 21, running all the way to the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. So we looked at those passages to give us an overview. We also looked, in a summary way, at passages in Ezekiel, in fact the whole book of Ezekiel, we summarized it. We looked at the book of Daniel, summarized it, and particularly Daniel chapter 9, that gives us a Jewish calendar. Eschatology is what? Jewish. Jewish, very good. The church fits in to a Jewish eschatology, and church eschatology is minor in comparison to Jewish eschatology. So you have to understand a little bit of what Jews expected in the Old Testament and what the Jewish concept of Messiah was and the concept of the kingdom. So the kingdom is delayed. And we have a passage in this 21 through 43, actually a few passages, that indicate to us that the kingdom is not going to be established because the king is going to die. And the Olivet Discourse gives us the eschatology leading up to the kingdom. So we spend a lot of time in there, because if you don't understand that, then you'll have a tendency of not understanding what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 and 25. So that was the setting. And just to give you a flavor of where we've been, verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple. In fact, if I backtrack, there's a temple mount with the Muslim mosque as prominent in the center there. So verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away. Now this, he was confronted by Jewish leaders 
And basically he ends up rejecting them because they have already rejected him as Messiah. So he is coming out of the temple. He has announced to them that the nation is going to come under judgment. And he is alluding, in some cases, to 70 A.D. when the nation was essentially destroyed and scattered throughout the known world. And Matthew 24 is now going to explain the events preceding the second coming of Messiah. And associated with the second coming is that millennial kingdom that the Jews anticipated. So he came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to him to point out the temple buildings to him. So they are crossing the Kidron Valley, which is just east of that temple mount, the place where this photograph is taken from, and they cross over Temple Mount, and the disciples are with him, and they're looking across. There's the Mount of Olives somewhere in there. Is where they are with Jesus, and this is the occasion that he begins to explain to them, not to the public, but to his disciples, what happened to the kingdom, and Matthew records it so that we understand what's gonna, what, what happened to the establishment of the kingdom because Messiah was there. Remember, what were the first words of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew's account? Does anyone remember? The kingdom of heaven is at hand because he announces himself as king. And he demonstrates that he's king, but then he's rejected, and now that kingdom has to be postponed. And that's what the Olivet Discourse is telling us. There's another shot from uh, from the south, uh, the Mount of Olives. This would be the Kidron Valley here. Temple Mount would be off of the slide to the left. Just give you a feel. Here is a reconstruction of the first century Jerusalem, a model that exists in Jerusalem. And if you were to take a trip, you could visit this, the model and you have a entire reconstruction of first century Jerusalem, and you will notice what is most prominent is the temple itself, and that is what the disciples are looking at and pointing out these buildings. Now, when they say buildings, they're looking at these, primarily these courts, buildings around Temple Mount, and this would have been a very spectacular view from Temple Mount, looking out and seeing the most prominent structure in all of Jerusalem. Now, in the first century, we have little hints from like Josephus and other writings and things that the Bible tells us. This was a very, very impressive structure. And remember, the Jewish temple, how many seats were there in the Jewish temple? How many could it seat? Zero. No one went in there except part of it, Jewish priests, and in the Holy of Holies, only one person once a year, the high priest. So it's different from a church or a, even a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, in that people didn't enter, but this was where God chose to manifest his presence. So it was very, very impressive in terms of not only its construction, but if you saw it, you would uh, be very, very much impressed. They estimate that it was about... 40 stories tall, I believe. So it's very huge. All of the little doors that you see there, they're out of proportion. In other words, they're huge doors. They're like 
some of them 15 feet tall rather than what they look like. They're not ordinary doors. So you kind of have a deceptive perception of the perspective. Josephus estimates on a given feast day like Passover, which just following the Olivet Discourse, how many people would gather there? Does anyone remember? Not quite a gazillion. 100,000. Yeah, about 100,000 people. So that might give you perspective. All of Balloon Fiesta Park on a given Saturday morning when they have a mass ascension. So that was what they're looking at, a very impressive sight. Now, present day, this is what it looks like from the Mount of Olives, and they would have seen the east wall. They would have seen the ancient city of Jerusalem in the background, which wasn't ancient to them, ancient to us. And today, the Dome of the Rock is prominent and in the first century, the temple would have been right on the same site. So that's the setting. Okay, how did I do? That was our little background. Are we? Oh, all right. See, I didn't lie. We are in the first portion of the Olivet Discourse. And after a little bit of the setting in verses 1 through 3, in verse 4, we have what is described as a period of great tribulation. And we've been emphasizing that this period of tribulation is very, very specific. It is Jewish. It is precise. In fact, Daniel gives us the exact number of years, Daniel chapter 9. And it's described throughout the Old Testament in different ways. It's a time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah's description. It's a time, uh, uh, sometimes it's called the Day of the Lord. Now, there are other things that are associated with the Day of the Lord, but a prominent aspect of it is this period of time called tribulation. It's also described as a time of great distress, great suffering preceding the coming of the Messiah. Now, in the Old Testament passages, it doesn't distinguish between the first and second coming. In fact, we don't know about that until the first century when it actually begins to unfold and Messiah is crucified, necessitating a return. So, this period of tribulation precedes. So, it's very prominent. It runs from chapter 24 verse 4, all the way to verse 28. So I take it, and this is very important, so don't miss this, that the period that Jesus is describing is that precise period of time that the Old Testament gives us a lot of further detail. And also, the book of Revelation gives us an extended, in fact, most of the book of Revelation deals with this period of time. That is how many years? Seven years in length. It's the last week of Israel's history that has not yet been fulfilled. There's a gap between the history that uh, Daniel lays out for the nation of Israel. And from Daniel's perspective, it was future. There's one week left, week of years left, so it's seven years in length. Therefore, don't miss this, I take it that everything that's described here is not fulfilled in the church age, as a lot of conservative Bible teachers actually teach. 
And when you do that, you have a tendency of sensationalizing present-day events. Now, we may be very close, and if that is the case, then we may see things leading up to these events, but be careful not to describe the things that you see today as fulfillments of Matthew chapter 24. Remember that? We've been talking about that. I've reminded you of that virtually every time we've met. So that's where we're at right now, this period of tribulation. Jesus calls it the initial part of it. He calls it, or he describes it, using the imagery of birth pangs. And physically, the imagery is that just as birth pangs increase in frequency and intensity as you get closer and closer to the birth, so also this period of time, you're going to have like birth pangs of judgment, severe pain, and they are going to come in waves such that they become more difficult, more drastic as we move, increase in frequency and increase in intensity. This is the most terrible time that has ever been experienced on the face of the earth. This is what Jesus says. We haven't got to that verse yet. But this is his description. And never will be. Obviously what comes after that is his return and the kingdom. So really the end of world history. So we're using an analogy that Jesus gives us. The analogy of end times are like birth pangs. Paul picks up on this. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, he uses the same imagery. Describing the same period of time. Make sense? So... We looked at the setting. We're looking at uh, chapter 24, 4 through 28, and particularly verses 4 through 14. That's the passage we're in right now. I title it, using Jesus' words, the beginning of birth pangs. There's going to be another phase. These birth pangs continue till the end, till delivery, delivery of the kingdom. But particularly the first part are described using that imagery. And there are several things in Most of this is on your outline sheet. We've looked at the deception of false Christs. Now, there have been false Christs historically and in the church age. We made a distinction. Those were perhaps described by by John in, what was it? Chapter 2, verse 18, I believe, where he says there's many antichrists. In fact, there were antichrists in um, John's day. Those are not the ones that Jesus is describing. He's describing false Christ that will take place during that seven-year period of time. If there's any that are false Christ today, they're not fulfillments of what Jesus is talking about. They are what John is talking about, but not Jesus. Jesus is dealing with that period of time. Make sense? So we looked at that, verses 4 and 5. Last time, uh, we were in this portion, and we will pick up and continue. Another birth pang besides false Christs. We have destruction of various disasters, verse 6 through 8. And we looked at verse 6, destruction of wars. Here of wars and rumors of wars, as the verse indicates. Then in verse 7, he describes, gives us a little bit more detail concerning those wars. And all of this takes place in this time frame that I've got a timeline, if you will, and just so that you understand the timeline, the horizontal line is a timeline, 
If you want to put today over here, we have no idea when all of these events will begin to unfold. Now, it appears from a premillennial, a pre-tribulation viewpoint, which we accept, that all of these events will take place after an event that pertains to the church, called the rapture. In fact, in eschatology, that would be the next major event of eschatology. It is eminent. And what we mean by eminent is that it could occur at any time. There are no signs associated with it. It comes without warning. And in fact, many will be surprised by it. In fact, the disciples anticipated and thought that perhaps they were living in the time. And some of them even thought that they had missed it. That's why Paul writes First Thessalonians. And then he follows up and explains their misunderstanding and writes Second Thessalonians. But it hasn't occurred yet, and you don't set dates for it. In fact, you can't set dates for any eschatology. That's a mistake. Even Jesus warns of that. So that's the next major event. There may be a gap. I've kind of separated that a little bit more so you can see a gap. Between the rapture, the Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't know. It may be short, it may be, could even be instantaneous, we don't know. But there's a specific seven-year period. Daniel breaks it down into three and a half years, two three and a half year periods. Book of Revelation makes it clear that there's three and a half years and three and a half years. It's described in Daniel's terms. It's described in the number of days. It's described in the number of months. So it's very specific. And the Olivet Discourse is dealing with it. So the first three and a half years we're describing as the beginning of birth pangs. Birth pangs continue, but we have the beginning of them first three and a half years. And the reason I say that is because we have some parallels with a passage that is clearly describing this seven year period, a passage in the book of Revelation. We looked at some of it last week. So verses 4 through 14 probably describe the first half because there's an important event that takes place in the middle that Daniel tells us about and Jesus refers back to Daniel. In fact, if you want to look at verse 15. That's why I divide 4 through 14 as the beginning because in verse 15 we have a description of that event in the middle. We'll talk about that when we get there. So everybody on board with us? Yep. What is the text in Revelation as you are saying, if I understand you right? Chapter 6. Well, it doesn't designate it, but I see there's some parallels that you can observe. It's chapter 6, Revelation 6. And Revelation 6, in John's account of eschatology, that begins events on earth that are, are part of this seven-year period of time. In Revelation... The bulk of the book of Revelation deals with this seven-year period from chapter, actually from chapter 4 to chapter 18, because chapter 19 describes the second coming. So all of those chapters deal with this period of time. Now chapters 4 and 5 are a heavenly scene where the church is probably pictured in those two chapters, along with angelic creatures and perhaps some Old Testament saints as well, depending on where you put them. But chapter 6 begins things on earth. We'll go back to that passage this morning. Verse 6, you will hear, that's what we were talking about last time, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. 
There's always been wars and there's been rumors of wars. We talked about that. But what Jesus is talking about during that seven-year period, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. That's the second birth pang. See that. And I want to start here because this is very, very important. So we talked about this last week. Let's reiterate it because this is so important to understand. See that you are not frightened. That's very important. The Olivet Discourse, this gives us the second reason for eschatology. The second reason God gives us Bible prophecy. We've been emphasizing it's not to satisfy our curiosity. It's not to give us just sensational material to be able to draw crowds. The purpose is to accomplish certain things in us as believers. And one of them, see that you are not frightened, this is to help us to put in perspective events that could be very, very terrible and in fact would be terrifying. The events of this period of time are going to be terrifying. And the believer needs to put them in a proper perspective. All right? For those things must take place. And just a quick review, the word there that's must is a translation of the Greek word day. And there's the Greek word and there's the transliteration of it. In some context, it just has an ordinary meaning of something that must take place. Some physical phenomenon and something that must follow or whatever. But in some contexts, like this one, this must carries on more than just the ordinary something must take place. It has the idea of divine necessity. In other words, this must, from God's perspective, take place. The idea of divine necessity. This is one of the contexts. So these events that Jesus is summarizing for us, these must take place. In other words, the implication is there is a divine plan, and within that divine plan, God is orchestrating events. Now, I believe he orchestrates all historical events, and I think particularly we have insight, for example, like this passage, that he most certainly is orchestrating events that have not even take place, taken place yet and will, in fact, take place in the future. So there is a plan. In other words, history is heading in a direction. God is sovereignly working to accomplish that plan. And part of what is going to take place in this seven-year period God is orchestrating and God is accomplishing and these things must take place. Divine necessity. And that divine plan includes the judgment of this period of tribulation. Judgment is part of this divine plan. So we need to be aware of that. If we were living in that period of time, we need to fortify ourselves. We need to strengthen. We need, And that's the idea of don't be frightened. Strengthen yourself so that you have a different perspective. And when these things come, you're not thrown for a loop. That you, you have a perspective. You can see God, as terrible as these things are, God is effecting and orchestrating a plan. They're part of what He is doing. They're not just tragedies. They're not just uh, man's corruption and man's evil. 
working itself out. But God is using all of those things without being evil to accomplish parts of his plan. And what the world will be experiencing in that seven-year period is a judgment. Is judgment. So also, we can learn, as we read the inspired text, it has application to you and I. We are not living in that period of time, but we may face things as they unfold and lead up to these events. And if that is the case, then we can take these passages and put them in perspective. That's why it's good to understand the times and understand that God orchestrates all of history, including the history that we are living in. Make sense? So it includes the divine necessity of uh, the judgment of the tribulation period. The last part of verse 6, but that is not yet the end. There's a lot more to come, much more. This is just the beginning. So fortify yourself, strengthen yourself, so that you, when you see these things, you're not shaken. You know, well, it's going to even get worse than these events. Okay? And from our perspective, the future doesn't look bright, at least the immediate future and probably leading up to these events, and we may see things as well, not fulfillments, but we may see the the things that lead up to the fulfillments. And there's going to be much more to come. And anything that we face in our time frame is nothing compared to what's going to take place during that seven-year period. So the purpose of prophecy in verse 4, it's to warn. That's one of the purposes. We looked at that. And verse 6 is to strengthen, to fortify, that we not be frightened. To be strengthened and fortified. In fact, that's what you should accomplish by reading Bible prophecy. Thirdly, also in verse 6, to prepare us so you know what to expect. There's more to come. And if you understand the biblical plan of God, you can understand that these events are right there, right in front of you. Read the book of Revelation. And we will study a summary of them in Matthew's account. So it's to prepare us. To prepare us. There's more to come. Also part of verse 7, besides the description of the wars, last part of it is devastation of famines and earthquakes, part of the disasters. Uh, There's the last part of verse 7, in various places there will be famines. So if you hear of famines today, they're not fulfillments of what Jesus is talking about. They may be precursors, they may be things leading up, but during that seven-year period, there's going to be extreme famine. And you can expect that after war, because resources are destroyed, and and people are lost, and things associated with normal everyday life is, is totally changed. So various places, famines will come as a product of war. Today, are there famines? Yeah. But be careful, don't associate them with Matthew chapter 24. In fact, one uh, Christian inquirer says, every day over 30,000 people die of starvation more than ever before. 30,000 more people That's what it says. I don't know where they get... Okay. There are famines today. There probably will continue to be famines, but they're not the fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about the famines of that seven-year period will be even more severe than anything that we will see preceding the seven years. Here, the famines are in that seven-year period called tribulation. So we don't want to sensationalize them. Here's the passage you were asking about. Here is the parallel passage in Revelation 6. 
Beginning in verse 3 through 4, we have seal judgments. I gave you a little introduction to them last time. When he broke the third seal, we already saw the first two seals. They're parallel. The first seal is parallel with the uh, false Christs. The second seal is parallel with war. The third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. Structurally, these seals are very similar. And John, John says, I looked and behold a black horse. We saw a white horse, we saw a red horse, now a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales. Now, you have to think back into first century time and kind of imagine, what is he talking about here? It's not real clear, just on the surface. But what is important is this pair of scales. What were scales used for primarily in the first century? Commerce. Very good. In other words, you weighed products. And a certain number of pairs had a certain value. And you would put the value, you would weigh out how many pounds or whatever, what's the weight that they would have weighed? Talents or... In the no, they didn't have metric system, and that would correspond to a certain amount of silver or gold or whatever or coins. So use scales. So he's seeing a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, "Now John is hearing these things, seeing these things, and what he's hearing, a quart of wheat." So we're already in the marketplace. And he's hearing here on one side a quart of wheat for a denarius. In other words, somebody saying, over here, come to my stand. Come to my produce stand. I'm selling a quart of wheat for a denarius. And if you want barley, I've got barley as well. Three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, barley was not as nutritious and uh, desirable. Having trouble finding words. Thank you. As the wheat was in the first century. And in fact, the poor generally would eat barley because it was cheaper. And wheat was finer and you'd make bread and that sort of thing from it. And he's saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. But do not damage the oil and the wine. In other words, you're not going to be able to afford the oil and the wine. You're not going to be able to damage the quantity that is being sold there. It's too expensive. That phrase is always kind of, I grasp, don't damage it. I, I find it hard to place that. I, I don't know what to do. Well, put it in a marketplace, and the word damage is kind of the stumbling block there. It has the idea of don't diminish, I guess you could say. In other words, we, we have a stock of oil, and we have a stock of wine, but don't diminish it. Because you can't afford it. All you can afford is the barley or and or the wheat. But notice, a denarius. We'll talk about that. Since we're talking about affordability, is that a denarius for a quart of wheat a very high price? Yes. I'm glad you asked. There it is. Denaria. De- denarion. Greek word. Anyone know? Some of you know what it is. A day's wage. A day's wage. Exactly. A couple of you know that. In the first century, a denarius, it took a whole day's work. And it wasn't eight hours with a, with several breaks and an hour and a half lunch break. Probably a 12-hour day of continuous, and if you had 
a break to eat something you might have been able to be able to eat, and it took you all you brought home was a denarius. This is the average wage of a worker in the first century. So what's it saying? It's going to take all of your resources just to be able to eat. If you're a poor person, you're, it's going to take all, and if you want to feed your animals, in fact, it was feed for animals as well, it's going to take all of your resources. That's the reason you're not going to be able to diminish the oil and the wine, which were more luxurious, which the rich could afford. Yeah, I was just reading this in a different uh, uh, paraphrase, and it said this may be a warning to be very careful handling the olive oil and the wine, which are ordinary which ordinarily are basic commodities, but because of famine, become very, very expensive. Yes. Famine and inflation that it talks about, that takes such a toll that a laborer will earn only enough to eat himself, uh, and there's nothing left over for anything else. That's right. Barely food himself. What is described here are famine conditions. So in somewhat of a cryptic way, the, the horse... What was the color of the horse? Uh, the black horse is a picture of famine conditions during the Great Tribulation. Jenny? You cannot live wheat and barley without oil. Healthily, yeah. Famine conditions are the description of that, just to cement it in your mind. So we have six seal judgments. The first one deals with a false peace that is brought by the false Christ call him Antichrist. That's followed by war and rumors of war. That's the second horse, the red one. The black one is famine. And what do we have in the Olivet Discourse? Jesus talks about false Christs and Antichrists, parallel with uh, Revelation 6, 1 and 2. The second seal and what we have in the Olivet Discourse is war. That's a description of the second seal in Revelation 6, 3, and 4. And we just looked at famines. And these are following, I think, sequentially. And these are the beginning of birth pangs. And they're going to persist throughout this seven-year period. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. Earthquakes in the Bible. There was an earthquake at the crucifixion. Matthew 27, 54. There was an earthquake at the resurrection that dislodged the stone. And the stone was dislodged in order to let Jesus out of the grave, right? Very good. No. To let people in to see that the tomb is empty. A resurrection body is not confined by material obstacles. So there's a resurrection... Earthquake at the resurrection, Matthew 28, 2. So they, they are prominent in God's dealings. In the early church, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are released from a jail as a result of an earthquake. That's at Philippi. At the end of the tribulation, there's going to be a massive earthquake. In chapter 16 of Revelation, verse 18, two times in that passage. And during the tribulation, in the passage we're looking at in verse 7, and in the parallel passages in Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse, and Luke's, and also there's other mentions of other ones, and particularly Revelation 6.12. There's a mention twice in 11.13, and also 
19. These are all of the mentions of earthquakes in the New Testament, and the one we're talking about is various earthquakes in various places in Matthew 24 during this seven-year period of time. So, these earthquakes, I think, have divine significance. They're, they're warnings to people. These things must take place. They're judgments. And even though things are difficult, I never try to argue eschatology. Just explain why I'm right. <laughs> well, that gets us to the end of verse 7. The only thing I wanted to point out in Luke's account... Luke adds some other things in there, and in various places, plagues as well. Besides famines, and besides earthquakes, he includes plagues, and then he says famines, and there will be terrors, whatever those are. In other words, other disasters, and great signs from heaven. This is Luke's account of the same passage that we're looking at in Matthew, the parallel portion of it. And let's conclude with verse 8. But all these things are merely, again, the beginning of birth pangs. Much more is going to come. Much more severe. Much more devastating. All these things. Birth pangs. They're going to increase in frequency and intensity. Following the analogy, Paul does the same thing. Another purpose of Bible prophecy is to prepare us. And we've run out of time. I was going to give you some other ones. I'm just going to flash these up here. But we have several reasons for eschatology. Here are some of the major ones. And Jesus gives us them in the Olivet Discourse. I'll come back to these and we'll look at them next week. But we've already seen in verse 4 to give warning so that we're not caught off guard. In other words, remember the little word there in verse 4? Beware, could be translated beware. Then we saw in verse 6, to strengthen us so that we're not frightened or thrown off guard. Also verse 6 and verse 8, to prepare us. In other words, this is just the beginning. In other words, things are going to get worse. There's a lot of things in God's plan to be prepared for. Verse 31, I think is included to give us comfort. Eschatology is a comfort to the believer. We should not be afraid of it. God is effecting his plan. And you see that in a couple of passages of Matthew 24, and certainly in Paul's account, when he records the rapture, he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's a comfort. To motivate, to stimulate, and ultimately to glorify God. Closing thought, eschatology is practical because of the purposes. Be prepared and be comforted. Okay, let's have somebody close in prayer. Mary Lee. Lord God, we are grateful. We are grateful that you called us in the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to in our spirits, because your word tells us before you enter our lives, we were dead in our sins, and dead people respond to what you have in our lives. We praise, honor, and glory. And we feel that you have not left us without a shepherd. A shepherd who is leading us, we have a shepherd who is guiding us, who is preparing us so that in everything we will be to stand firm in you that uh, there is no trial that is coming, but what you are not already praying us for. May we remember that 
day to day to day they live our lives as if we should believe you are who you say you are or doing what you say you live like Jesus. Amen.